Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's happening. It's on. Fucking A. It is day four, round four of the Fireball Tour. Uh, I have finally got John Feldman for a moment. I think the last time I tried to get you on the show was Slam Dunk, but obviously I'm on stage from like midday, all day there, and we just couldn't make it work. But we're here. Um, there's loads of stuff I want to cover with you, John. I think we should begin with punk rock. Like me, I think you're a punk rocker at heart. Would it be safe to say that punk rock has afforded you a career and by extension a life? Has a lot of what's come from your life come from punk, would you say? Punk rock has definitely changed, altered, and gave me a life beyond anything I could have ever imagined. You know, when I was going to punk shows as a little kid, I would never have imagined that I'd be here in Manchester speaking with you about punk rock all this time later because those shows were, they were so small, like the, the Adolescents and TSOL and GBH and all those bands that I saw when I was growing up, Social Distortion, they were just always in some veterans hall, you know, with... 30, 40 people. I mean, there was no one really there back in, in those days. It just didn't feel like there was going to be this future. Yeah, it, I guess it wasn't built to last, was it? No, and it wasn't. I mean, if you think about it, Bad Religion and Social Distortion are the only bands that really persevered, and neither of those bands really went on to become as big as The Offspring or Green Day or Blink-182 did later in, you know, in the resurgence of the, of the 1994 to 96 kind of you know, huge explosion of the whole movement. You know? Because that, what was that? That was like 1980, I was, must have been 1982 to 1985 when most of those Southern California bands were really affecting my life when I was in high school, you know, and, and, and that whole movement really kind of went away. Yeah, till Suffer, right? Till like 88? I guess so, dip, but right? I mean, who's going to, I mean, Fat Mike claims suffered. he wouldn't have written, I mean, he wouldn't have done the kind of records that No Effects wouldn't have made Two Heaps and a Bean or Punk and Drublick without Suffer. I know he said that. Um... But I mean, who else did it really affect? I mean, No Effects was the first, because without No Effects, I mean, would there be a Blink-182? I mean, I, I really think that No Effects is the band that allowed kind of the gateway band to Green Day and a lot of these other pop punk bands of the early 90s. And am I right in thinking that the British first wave was also a scene and a style that impacted you as well? Yeah, bands for like sure. Buzzcocks, Clash, Sex Pistols. Yeah. How the, are you discovering bands like that in, you know, California at your age, pre-internet, you know, before 
social media and all of that thing, how are you getting switched on to groups like Buzzcocks, Clash, Sex Pistols, etc.? You know, someone told, I was a huge police fan. I mean, the police were a massive band back then, so they were sort of my guilty pleasure to a certain extent. But I mean, in hindsight, I mean, they were, they always had the greatest songs and he had the greatest voice and he was just an amazing bass player. I was a bass player as a kid, so I would learn his bass lines and just study how he wrote music with starting with the bass. You know, at least that's the way I interpreted it as that. And so when I found out that he was in Quadrophenia, Quadrophenia, the movie, I would watch every, I'd go over to my friend house and just watch this my parents would never let me because of that scene in the alleyway with stephanie having you know sex with Jimmy. the alleyway is still there you can go and it's i've been you've done the mecca i've been there and yeah in brighton i've done the whole fucking thing i mean i, I listened to quadrophenia walking the pier when i was making a king's blues record you know it's just one of those things that i just like a seminal moment in my life a full circle kind of thing and so to me it's like Quadrophenia sort of gave me the fashion sense of bands like the Jam and the Buzzcocks with the skinny ties and the three button, you know, sharkskin suits and all that stuff, and which is still very much part of the Goldfinger look, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely part of what we still do. And and as much as the specials influenced our style, you know, I'm still equally as influenced by Bad Religion, who kind of look nothing like I like we dress or anything like that. But their sound is definitely part of it, and I feel like dressing up and putting on a show is part of what I do as an entertainer. And it's not like every, you know, most bands are sort of skateboard shirt, mm -hmm. skate shorts and vans. It's just not what I've ever really been into. I've always been into looking stylish. Me too, John, or perhaps not stylish, but certainly the costumes <laughs> is, you know, a big your part look of <laughs> brother, your fucking look. Um, your first band family crisis. Was that the name of it? That was my first band. And yeah. what, how old were you then? Like 15 years old? I was 12. 12? Yeah. I started, I started that band at 12 and, I, and it lasted till I was 15. And we were very influenced by the Southern California kind of skate punk. You know, there's a band called The Faction that we grew up with down the street in San Jose. And Steve Caballero was part of that band, who's a legendary skateboarder. And so the, 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 we were all kind of like this. It was sort of like thrash punk, but I was really influenced by the Buzzcocks. I mean, that was, I mean, I can send you some songs and you can I play. Love to hear. You oh, can, we can play some on the show. Yeah, yeah. I'll send you Amazing. some shit to, to like little snippets. But it, I mean, it doesn't sound that different than Goldfinger, to be totally honest. It just doesn't. It's just more bass driven because I was a bass player. We we're a three piece. I played bass. Donnie Campion was the guitar player. And this guy, Mike McCullough, was the drummer. And we just like, I mean, the, the, the furthest we ever really went was Lake Tahoe. We did like a, like a Northern California run from the Bay Area up to, and we did shows with Seven Seconds and Bad Religion, which was great, like in 1983, to have done those shows and experienced like, that style of punk rock you know back in the day but I was I mean I was still into the you know I was doing like kind of the nail head you know Liberty Spikes and I was like stealing gelatin from my mom's cupboard and all that stuff so it was like I mean, I, I took my dog, literally took the dog collar off my dog to put the Sid chain on to have like, you know, just ripped out my fucking ripped up my pants and all that shit. Because back then it wasn't like hot topic. You just kind of had to make your own clothes. And I actually had a friend of mine, this guy, Sean Gorgonis, that, that came to London back in the early 80s and bought a pair of creepers from um, Malcolm McLaren's store, the sex, sex. shop. Yeah, 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 that, yeah, that shop. And he brought them back and I bought them from him for $30. And back in that, in those days, I'm like 30 bucks for a fucking pair of shoes, but they were like blue suede creepers. And I felt like such a stud, but no one back then knew what they were. I just knew I was really stoked to have creepers. Were your parents supportive of you being a musician and going out on tour then? Because to be 15 and on the road, you've got to have quite trusting and you know encouraging and supportive parents to, to give that the green light. Yeah, they um they called the cops on me and they put me in re tried to put me in rehab and I ran away a lot and so the supportive element I'd probably say the opposite of that they okay. were they were very scared I mean I remember going to see the Dead Kennedys when I was a kid I saw them a bunch of times and they were going to drop me off at um, on Broadway in San in San Francisco and they were going to go see some opera and they just were just waiting and I was waiting in line to get in my mom's like there's no chance because she saw the other punks she in saw the, the other yeah. punks and they were like and everyone's like doing you know whatever they're doing speed and just all the shit that people did back then. Well, it was a crazy time, wasn't it? Dangerous. A lot, a lot of crime. drugs. A lot. I mean, people would like tape razor blades to their combat boots in the circle pit and they'd have chains swinging around. And it was a very different kind of era where you go to a punk show, at least whatever we call going to see, you know, Rancid or Pennywise or No Effects. I mean, the, the kind of modern punk movement, everyone is very helping each other up and there really aren't a, a ton of fights. Back then it was so many fights. 
you know? So I look, I understand now that I'm a parent, I understand the idea, but my parents were the opposite of supportive. They were like, what is wrong with you? You know, punk rock is, is some kind of mental illness is what they really believed. So were you getting into drugs and alcohol yourself at a young age? Yeah. And so that, that, you know, part of the drugs and alcohol of, of my punk rock was what my parents were scared of. They didn't want to see me overdose and die and see me drunk on the, you know, becoming some homeless kid. And plus, I mean, the, the, the look of, of punks in the early eighties, I mean, it's either a shaved head or you've got your Liberty spikes, you know, it's very, it was so different than what was happening at the time that my parents were just scared. Like everyone was scared. They just didn't know what the fuck punk rock was. It would have been like when rock and roll first emerged in the fifties, this idea that the, you know, the nationwide youth are being corrupted by this crazy music, right? Yeah, and if you think about the nihilistic sort of approach and the anti-government, anti-authority and all of it, I mean, we hated cops and just like throwing shit at the, poli- at the police and all the stuff that we really did. Protesting, I remember being at the Democratic Convention when they were protesting Ronald Reagan, you know, and Jella Biafra from the Dead Kennedys had a Reagan mask and I was like in the circle pit, like just it's in the middle of it all and they had cops on horsebacks with their fucking batons out beating people up and it was just wild, man. It, it it was really, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever felt as alive as I did back then when I was in the movement. And, you know, I was probably like really deep into it for maybe three, three, four years. I mean, I, you know, and I definitely explored other music as I got older because it just felt like, you know, as soon as TSOL made a record called Beneath the Shadows, it was like this new wave record with keyboards and everything. And I felt like that was the turning point of sort of, you know, most punk rock, you know, um, what did Bad Religion make a record? Uh, um, they made like a full synth record as well, like around the same time. And it's like everyone sort of started exploring other things other than hardcore punk, you know, that was kind of, to me, started with Minor Threat and Bad Brains that, you know, kind of morphed into this new wave movement. And then I kind of got grew my hair long, like Henry Rollins, and I'm like, you know, punk rock's dead and all that shit, you know? Well, a lot of the people who, I guess, know you either for your production work or Goldfinger don't know perhaps about the the band that got it all started for you in terms of like a professional career in music which was the electric love hogs yeah and you were there you moved to la right after family crisis and you know you kind of think punk's over and at that point in time it's that whole jane's addiction chili peppers fishbone just popping alternative rock scene and you're right there as that's all kicking off right i was there i mean i moved right there in the middle of it all and it's like i met I met Maynard from Tool the day he got off the airplane and I used to work at this clothing store and he'd come visit me every day and we would just talk about music. So it was it was like I kind of bridged the gap. I mean, the, the Electric Love Hogs kind of bridged the gap between Fishbone and where Rage Against the Machine was kind of headed. You know, I mean, I was really influenced by Uplift Mofo Party Plan, this Red Hot Chili Peppers record. Yeah, I love the album. Yeah, it was like that be, uh, that Behind the, the Sun. Clinton produced one? No, that was no, one before it. Was, Andy Gill, was it Gang of Four did that one? Um, no, that was Michael Beinhorn, I yeah, think, yeah, yeah, yeah. produced that one. Or Matt Wallace. You know, Michael Beinhorn, I think, did. Anyway, it was like that album just sounded so good. And the bass playing, I just couldn't get over how he played. I just had never heard anything like it. And I'm not, I've never tried to be like... A flea type. Well, not that. I've never been Brendan Urie. I've, I've never been able to sing like Freddie Mercury. I've, I just don't, I don't, you know have that the mechanics to be that kind of singer and so my vocal stylings when I listen to Anthony Kiedis I'm like well he is not Freddie Mercury either so it's like maybe I can do this you know and just kind of jump around a lot and people won't notice that I don't have the greatest voice of all time you know and so it's part of it is like putting on the show and I used to see the Chili Peppers God I saw them play so many times back then and Anthony would just do backflip after backflip on stage and land on his back and just keep on injuring himself and just dive you know just do cannonballs into the crowd and I'm like fuck this is the greatest show I've ever seen and the fishbone as well I mean Angelo would literally headwalk across the crowd and just like dance across people's heads and no one would get hurt because he's just this little guy you know and it was just like it blew me away by the live show and that's when I'm like the live show is equally as important as the music and the electric love hogs had terrible music I mean I cannot listen to that album still now I cannot fucking listen to it it's just like I'm 
I mean, I'm somewhere. Um, we had we had uh, Tommy Lee produce some of it. Yeah, yeah. Because Tommy was, I mean, at the time, Motley Crue were the biggest band in the world, right? Of course. How and, did he get switched on to you? Well, guys? he saw us play at some club, and he was like, "Dude, I have to fucking work with this band because we were we were so energetic live, and we had this great live show. And we had a huge following in L.A. before we got signed, and so Tommy just came and he's like, "Dude, you have to let me produce at least a couple songs." And we just and he took us to his house when he was married to Heather Locklear, and he just fucking get on his back and light his farts on fire and just like he was the greatest dude and he would just be fucking wasted and the funniest guy he was just like the funniest fucking guy I'd ever met and he was this legendary drummer still to this day one of the best drummers ever I mean in my opinion I mean he's just a great you drummer you see the influence of him on like a Travis Barker right especially in terms of the live show and the kind of the theatricality of what drumming can be within that context of a rock show yeah he's 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 just a really solid I remember we, we played the Lovehawks played this one show and he came out and he played we played Shout Out the Devil the Motley Crue song and he came out and played with us and it was like our drummer was good but I mean Tommy was like so solid in his timing and the way he hit every drum it was like this is how you're supposed to play you know and so his influence on me definitely kind of brought out the metal and so there was definitely like a lot of metal in my vocals and you know he would always like be like just sing up like scream like Vince Neil style you know and so there's this Motley Crue element to that record which and it's not like I don't like Motley Crue because I mean Motley Crue fucking wrote great songs it's just we had five dudes that all thought we were songwriters in the band and so everyone there'd be all these tempo changes and like four different guitar solos in every song and there were like seven minute jams and it's just like the album just wasn't ever what I would have imagined an album that I was going to make was going to be but I learned a lot from that process I learned a lot how to be a producer because the way Tommy treated us and the way that he kind of allowed he, he like he joined the band like he was in the band he came and played with us and he was just like he was all he's always going out there showing our drummer bobby like he'd, he'd play a beat and have an idea for how the song should be and he was just like part of the whole thing made us all laugh when shit was stressful and there's this other guy mark dodson that was part of the i process. know mark very well oh you do yeah, yeah he worked with ugly kid joe didn't he and suicidal tendencies right. and yeah so we work with him we work with mark because he did infectious grooves yes, which was like yeah, one yeah. of our biggest influences you know and mike i love mike muir and, and he was like a huge influence on me i saw suicidal tendencies as a kid a bunch and so it was like mark was this really really just great laid back amazing engineer that got the best sounds ever but i mean i was to be honest my guess is if he was going to list some of the hardest moments of his life working with me would probably be top five why so because i would have lists of like different effects and different delays and how I wanted, you know, these kind of different ping pong delays to go and these different stereo choruses on the guitar and flangers over the drums. And I'd have, I literally would have a list of 60 things I'd have him to add in the production. And he was the producer. I'm just like the singer. I was supposed to just, in his opinion, probably just show up, sing my parts and, you know, deliver the songs that were already supposed to have been written. But I was, little did I know I was a producer in sort of in training and I just had all these things. And I remember one day he wouldn't even let me in the studio he just said write down everything you want I had, a, I, I had this like long list of everything I handed it to him and he didn't even look at me he just turned around and went in the studio and I mean I want to I want to say he started he was like fucking smoking about a carton of cigarettes a day trying to work with me because I was so I mean I was so focused on what I wanted the music to sound like and in that group, you mentioned Bobby there. That's Bobby Hewitt, who went on to form Orgy. You That's had right. Dave Kushner, who went on to obviously be in Velvet Revolver, loads of That's great right. bands. Um, you had Stephen Perkins play on the record too, right, from Jane's Addiction, and John Norwood from Fishbone. So already you've just got this ensemble of key players of that scene at that time that you know went on to do incredible things as well. And also you took out a lot of bands, right, that went on to become gargantuan. Like you mentioned Rage earlier, Tool as well, Alice in Chains. What's your memories of all those people back then? Was the writing on the wall with a lot of them? Like, these guys are going to be fucking great? Was it clear? I saw Rage Against the Machine in front of four people at this place called the Coconut Teaser, you know, before we took them on tour. And it was like, Zach was already in Inside Out. So I think he had already established himself as being, you know, kind of a legendary front man. But it's like, when I saw them, I, I, I mean, there's no question 
I knew what it was going to be. And then I saw them open for body count about three weeks later before we took them on tour. And it was like they had the entire, it was like this sold out show at the palace. And it was like everybody was jumping. And I'm like, fuck, this is going to be, this is it, man. This is going to be the next big band. And um, I mean, it was, it was out without question. Tool, I mean, to be honest, like I saw, I mean, Maynard was just, he'd always have his back to the audience and he had this kind of like thing. He had this like rat tail of a ponytail in his hair. And he was just such a, he was such a unique personality. I just, I wouldn't have put, I wouldn't have bet that Tool was going to become such a seminal act at the time, you know. And we took Rage on their first tour. We took Tool on their first tour. Uh, Pearl Jam opened for us. We had all these great legendary groups back then open because we were so big in L.A. at the time because our live show was just so intense. It was like all of us. I mean, we had five lead like frontmen in the band trying to like be. And you can tell by how we all started bands afterwards that we all went on to do kind of big things. But everyone was fighting with each other, and that's the thing why it never it never would have worked you know how come it didn't work for electric love hogs and when it didn't and you see all these bands that have opened up for you go on to do massive things is that a hard thing for you to deal with and do you then kind of almost contemplate leaving music or are you in it for the long haul but you're just trying to figure out what comes next like what what's the headspace for you around that time like at the the final days of electric lug hogs and then you know in the lead up to goldfinger yeah um so i had to go back to working retail you know so i was I was working retail when I put Goldfinger together. I mean, when I put uh, the Electric Love Hogs together, I was working at American Rag. And then um, I went out and did all, did, you know, we, we came to the UK, opened for Ugly Kid Joe. We opened for Motley Crue, all these great, we just did all these great shows. And then I went back to selling shoes. I remember this guy, Ricky Rackman. Yeah, I remember him from the Headbangers Bowl. Yeah. yeah, that yeah, guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so he was a huge supporter of the Electric Love Hogs. And I remember seeing him in the shoe store and I was like, and I pretended like I was shopping. I just went out, I came out from behind the shoe podium and just was, I remember feeling like such a fucking asshole. I'm like, man, I, you know, how do I go from touring the world to the band breaking up and me back to working for $6 an hour, you know? And, um, I didn't know. I mean, to be honest, I didn't know. I mean, there was a, I think there was a, there was a real turning point in my mind where I, I put Goldfinger together. I mean, I had this real plan. I was, I, I, I sold shoes with Simon Williams, who was He's the basis, right? Our, our first yeah. bass player and so we would talk about Elvis Costello and Squeeze and I always had like this idea because what I wanted to do with the Love Hogs was certainly not the way it ended up becoming you know I had this kind of thrash suicidal infectious grooves idea and it became more of kind of a metal like a heavy metal project which is fine but it's not what I envisioned because I was in a band with a bunch of metalheads you know and so I'm like when I put Goldfinger together I wanted it to be somewhere more like Family Crisis which had you know Buzzcocks Jam and all those kind of like early 70s elements Elements, but I was all I was listening to was Bad Religion and No Effects at the time. You know, at the shoe store, I would literally stacks like seven or eight CDs, and like they'd have those you know multiple CD holders, and they would just go from one Bad Religion album to the next. And shoppers and people working at the store couldn't; they wouldn't even be able to tell the difference. So it would just be like you know, suffer to against the grain. You know, it was just like one after the other, and it was just. I couldn't not be influenced by Bad Religion. They were such a such a band, at least in LA at the time, that just it was such a big thing for me. But I mean, for me, it was like I was I was working. I had food in my stomach. I had I was renting this apartment. I had this girlfriend, and it was like. I, I sort of came to acceptance that if this was what my life was going to be like, just listening to punk rock and selling creepers and, you know, selling Doc Martens, that it's not the end of the world. It just wasn't the end of the world. And that's when things clicked. As soon as I kind of accepted my life for the way it was, that's when Goldfinger really took off. And how do you find Charlie and Darren? So my best friend managed Starbucks in the Beverly Center and Darren worked with him and Darren was the worst. Like he would put Visine in people's coffee and he would just steal from the till. And just, he was just like the worst. And anyone that ordered decaf, he would do double caffeinated. And he was just that guy, you know, that just, um, and when I say the worst, I mean, look, I mean, I have a, I have a deep, deep love for Darren Pfeiffer. I really do. I mean, he's like a family member that, you know, you see on Thanksgiving and it's like so fun for 10 minutes and then it's just not fun for, 
a lot of big personalities a, then they're all quite different a why yeah yeah so i met him at starbucks i met charlie because he was the electric love hogs guitar tech oh okay and so right, he right. he worked for dave kushner and so he was sort of like a dude i knew, knew that could play guitar that just was around and so simon i was working with and that was kind of how we started we made this little ep called richter this little um six song ep that i just produced i mean when we got when love hogs got signed i bought this 12 track re, like a kai you know beta max recording thing and so i just recorded everything myself not knowing that like i was destined to produce the goal you know most of goldfinger's material but i just kind of did it because no one else had a recording device you know it was it was way before you could record an album on your phone you know where people have the luxury these days of doing what we, we just had to record there um, and, you know, you've kind of already gone through two musical communities and scenes from the early punk, as you said, TSOL bands like that, Social Distortion. Then you're in that kind of alternative boom with Chili's, etc. And then this emerging third wave of scars that's now referred to is just about to pop. Uh, obviously, on the East Coast, I guess you've got Boss Tones. And then you guys, were you probably one of the first California bands to get coverage from within that peer group? And then would your peers at that time have been, no doubt, say Ferris, Real Big Fish? It's an interesting question that I haven't really, th I've never th actually thought about how we became like a ska punk band. I never, it wasn't some intentional, um, I mean, I just, I loved the specials. I, I saw the English beat was probably my first concert I ever saw with Bow Wow Wow. So, I mean, I, it was, it was in there as a huge influence as a kid, you know, but it wasn't like no effects or bad religion or social distortion. I mean, I have a social distortion tattoo. I mean, those, those bands like shaped me you know punk rock shaped me it was it wasn't like I, I i sunk my teeth into ska music but i mean i had every madness album i had every specials record but when we started this band we were talking more elvis costello and the jam than we were talking mighty mighty boston's like i, I i've never i've never owned a mighty mighty boston's record so it's like that wasn't part of my sort of you know thing it was like we had mind's eye we had miles away we were covering squeeze up the junction that's such a great song yeah i love that song so much and um but we were mostly like you know kind of like a pop punk band and then i'm just trying to think of how here in your bedroom kind of came in to be because the video is so two-tone you know i remember we opened for the skeletons who was a huge kind of la influence at the time um they never really went out, but they were like a, a, a more two-tone version of Fishbone, you know, and really, really great live band. And so I saw Real Big Fish open for the Skeletons. I'm like, well, this is kind of a movement that's happening. And I love No Doubt. I saw No Doubt play in 1989. I met Gwen and she had her baseball cap and her overalls and she was just the cutest, loveliest person ever. Just really, really sweet, sweet girl. There's this guy named Brett Cantor that, that really helped me a lot. He discovered Smashing Pumpkins. He was the one that took me to Rage Against the Machine in front of those four other people and um, he introduced me to no, no doubt when they were before tragic kingdom and he got ended up getting murdered in his apartment and someone slit, slit his throat actually like horrible murder and um i just i don't know i forgot about i just forgot about him and how he sort of as an a and r guy he sort of shaped me to a certain extent of like being there early and going to shows and being there to see bands before they really kind of take off and knowing what to look for um but i you know no doubt weren't they weren't they weren't an influence they felt they felt like peers by the time that we kind of came up and opened for them and so my ska influence was more madness in the specials than it was anything related to you know the movement that was happening with um hepcat or less than jake or Buck 09 or any of the bands that we started touring with at the time. I mean, our ska, our ska influence was probably 20% of the set. Most of the other shit was just like fast punk. It's interesting. I think sometimes bands emerge and these scenes and these movements just kind of happen, don't they? There's not really someone there dictating and directing it. It is just like, I guess they're all drawing from the same pool and it's just their own individual takes and then they collectively kind of fall in together, right? Yeah. And yeah. Were Real Big Fish always brass orientated? Was that always their thing? It was always their thing, yeah. yeah. I mean, when I first saw Real Big Fish open for the Skeletons, it was like they had these three horn players, and it was like when I first heard Sellout, like the first night they closed with Sellout, I'm like, that is a fucking song, you know? And I and that's how I got them signed, was through Sellout, and it was like that was such a huge period of my life. But they were 
always like they were the best. I mean, to me in Southern California, they were the best ska punk band ever, you know, and I, I discovered Operation Ivy later, you know, kind of later on and, and Suicide Machines were doing their thing in Detroit and everyone had their kind of moments. But I mean, I guess I feel like we were part of, you know, what we're doing now, Save Ferris and Real Big Fish. We, that was, we always played shows together, you know, when we were coming up at the same time, you know, it was cool. But I mean, the ska stuff for us, I mean, I really sunk my teeth hard into it on our second album. That's yeah. Yeah, where yeah. I really Hang-ups, made yeah. a decision to, I mean, that this was the style of music that I, I really felt like we played better than our other stuff. It just felt more authentic to me. And I'd written Superman in between the first album and Hang Ups. I'd written it just sort of as um, they wanted to put out this little seven inch. It was a split seven inch with us and Real Big Fish, Tiger Beat. I forget what they called it, but it was like, so I had Aaron sing on Superman. He's singing all the harmonies on the song. And I just written the song and I'd written, it was kind of like this long, it was a song called Quest that ended up going on hangups and, and Superman were part of the same song and I just split them up and I said I'll make this one punk and I'll make this one ska and that was kind of how the songs happened and then Superman just randomly became what it is because of Tony Hawk I mean really it wasn't like we ever expected it to be a single it was just an in-between album song I think for me and everyone in my age, that was how we discovered here in the UK, at least your band was that soundtrack. And do you remember being in the UK for the first time after the game was out? And was it an instant like, oh, shit, this is happening? Yes, yeah. for sure. I mean, we were opening for the Bloodhound Gang and we had been to England maybe twice before that, you know, but it was 1997 or 1998 and we were opening for the Bloodhound Gang and, and it was like we played a bunch of old songs just thinking, you know, whatever, no one's going to have the new record that just came out. And then Superman was sort of halfway in the set and people just went fucking ballistic. And I'm like, what the fuck? And I didn't even put it together. I just had no idea that it was the video game that people were hearing the song from until maybe three weeks later, someone sort of like connected the dots and said, that's why the song is so big, which is really cool. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So you're saying that very early on, the interest in production and also the interest in A&R is kind of there. You know, it's it's away in your mind and it's working away. At what point do you feel like that's where you want to start focusing your attention alongside Goldfinger? And then at what point does it perhaps eclipse your perhaps interest in Goldfinger? If that makes sense as a question. Yeah, it totally makes sense. I mean, um, I think hearing Bert sing on the cassette that he gave me in Utah, I knew that he was going to be much bigger than I would ever be because of his voice, his voice alone, without even really seeing them perform. I had met him and he was, you know, for all intents and purposes, just some annoying drunk kid that didn't really know a lot about Goldfinger. And I was sort of like his guitar player and, and drummer were huge fans, but he just, he, he could give two fucks about Goldfinger at the time. And now we tour with them so much back in the day that, but I knew that there was something stylistically different with the used than any other band I'd ever heard. And I knew his voice was just, 
untouchable and unparalleled. I just never heard anything like it. And so I knew that I had, it was, it, it felt like my duty as a human to nurture this kid and take what he had and try and grow it because Goldfinger I felt had already peaked. We were on our third album, I think at the time stomping ground. And I just, I, I, I just knew that, I mean, I, 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 I knew at that point enough about the business to know that, you know, no matter, I mean, I'd written counting the days, which I mean, for all intents and purposes, if you dissect the song, it's probably our closest thing to like a, a hit song with the, the lyrical content and the message and the music. It's just like, it makes sense. And it just, I just feel like I was probably too old and I think that kind of music, I mean, Limp Bizkit was happening at the time. And, and I guess Blink-182 and pop punk as opposed to ska punk, right, was becoming the... Yeah, for sure. And and, and I and, and I knew, I mean, look, Billy Joe Armstrong is one of the greatest performers of all time. I mean, Tom and Mark were funnier than anybody and, and, and you know, Blink had opened for a, us a bunch and I'd watch them and it's just like the banter and the connection that they had. And then when Travis joined the band, because, you know, we had toured a lot with the Aquabats and so I was really tight with Travis through that um, I just I just had this you know and it wasn't like a defeatist attitude it was just like I just I was a, a realist it yeah. was kind of like I'm not gonna I'm I can't sing as well I'm not as funny as this and and I've, I've given this my wholehearted attempt you know and we had little breakthroughs on that record with this you know number one song with 99 red balloons and um in germany and can the days was a, a big hit in germany as well and so we had these moments that was like cool but it was it never felt like it sunk in and we were like on to the next level it was always kind of like thousand seaters and we were just grinding it out you know from you know from the beginning it was super fun but by now i guess if it's 2002 from 1994 you know we're eight years into it and i'm still grinding and like barely making a living you know it was a combination of all of it are you starting a family at this point as well are you married are there kids on I've the had, scene i have yet? my i have my um my wife I'm, I'm married a year i've been with her since 96 so like i've got her but we don't have kids yet but it wasn't i wasn't thinking about like raising a family i wasn't thinking about i never ever thought about the money if i ever thought about the money i wouldn't be here talking to you about my success the money was never important it was always about like the fun you know and 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 how passionate i was about developing these artists and helping bert take what he has had as an you know this incubated level and growing it into what the used ended up becoming you know discovering my chemical romance and, and really I mean after pop punk it became emo yeah you know and, and you know to me it was like Bert was the forefront of that movement and of course you've got poison the well and you've got refused and you've got all these you know OG kind of post hardcore bands AFI but I mean nobody sang like Michael Jackson like Bert and nobody had these choruses that were these soaring anthemic melodic super melodic choruses it was like pop music with this kid screaming and I remember going to all these A&R meetings and meeting all these high end executives and they're all saying if only he didn't scream so much if only he just sang the whole song it would connect with so many more people and I'm like that's not the point the point of this music is it's, it is the new this is the new punk rock you know and his aggression is the thing that I think connected people the most with the music is it Maverick that you do a deal with first? And is that how your kind of shift towards the A&R thing really cements itself is the deal through them and then the, the acts and stuff that you discover and yeah. sign to that label? So Maverick was... Uh, um, this, and that's Madonna's label, right? Or it was, was Madonna's label. Guy O'Siri ran it, who now runs Live Nation, and, he's, and he manages U2. He's just legendary. And, and, and he... So he gave me my first break I, I signed a band called show off to him they were like a mini green day and then i signed mest which were like a mini blink and and you know mest had a gold record in japan but they never really like none neither of these bands took off and guy was done with me he was like i'm you know we've kind of given this a shot not neither of these bands have really done anything and so i was gonna let me go and then i found the used and he didn't get it at first he was like this is he was one of those guys that like most of them just thought it was too aggressive and too screamy and just didn't really get it and then his 
sort of his boss, Warner Brothers owned Maverick. And so Tom Wally, who ran Warner Brothers at the time, was like, I understand this and I want to do a deal. I want to sign the used. And so we ended up working it out through Guy. And that's how I found Story of the Year, signed them to Maverick. But it was like sketchy. It was touch and go at the the moment. I was like, am I done with this whole thing again? Am I going back to selling shoes again? You know, but it's like it all kind of just connected one thing after another. And that's the thing about life is you just fucking keep going and you just don't, I don't know, you know, no one's guaranteed. I mean, the use could have just come and gone and been nothing, you know, they didn't add, they, they, they didn't become my chemical romance, but they still made such an impact on modern rock at the time that allowed me to be able to, I mean, story of the year at the time sold more records, but the used in hindsight has been a much more relevant band, you know, story of the year made one record. The used made, you know, three or four really important albums as far as you know i can tell who was the band that madonna allegedly sent naked photos of herself to to try and sign them and is that a true story yes it's true rancid it's, it was rancid it yeah. was uh-huh. incredible but she never got them <laughs> she never got them. <laughs> they stayed with epitaph right uh no, they was, did stay with epitaph i mean yeah at the time she was so fucking hot wasn't she um, hell yeah yeah i mean she still is <laughs> yeah, i guess yeah. but it's like yeah so hot um are there any bands that you've worked with over the years that you feel like should have done better than they did and one band i want to ask you about is Foxy Shazam, because I think they're one of the most original, incredible, highly entertaining groups I've ever seen and heard. And that self-titled record was the one you did with you them, You saw right? them play? I've seen them play. I saw them open for The Darkness. Okay. And he's just, he's a larger-than-life rock and roller, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's a legend, yeah. And I, and he's had, and that's the thing, is like when you've got so many breaks, and you've got, you know, you sign with Warner Brothers with the greatest A&R person of all time, Craig Aronson. You know, you get me producing the record when I'm just like crushing everything I'm doing. And you've got all, you know, every band wants to take you to support and you're unwilling. He was unwilling to really take any suggestions. I mean, he was willing to kind of work with songs, but as far as like his his band at the end, this guy, Sky, was a great piano player, but the rest of the players weren't anywhere near as good. I mean, if you could compare Bruce Springsteen, everyone in his band was just like legendary players, and he didn't have that, and he wouldn't, he just wouldn't kind of move on, and, and, and there's something great about the loyalty of staying with the band. I mean, I get it. I'm in a band. I understand that, but, but he wouldn't listen to the label, and he just was... Um, it was really challenging to watch that from the distance when you see a band kind of making bad decisions and you can just sit back and, you know, we made us, I mean, a, a real seminal record, but in the end, so good, he would have, thank you. He would have these really heartfelt moments like singing about his son, Julian, you know, um, and then he would just make these jokes immediately. Like as soon as you felt a connection, he would start joking and, and then, he'd, you know, eating the cigarettes and everything. It was like, there's a circus act and then there's these great songs and how do you connect the two without it just being a joke band? And I think that he, and, and I think that he eventually came around and then Macklemore gave him another shot and it was this great video and all this stuff. But you know, by that, at that point he was, I don't, I don't know. Sometimes you're your own worst enemy and you just, you, you you think you know everything. And I think that's one thing about my success is I've never pretended to know everything. And I just have mentors that I've had along the way that have kind of taught me, you know, um, you know, Jerry was a great, you know, who was producing Blink when I first met him. Um, Jerry Finn. Jerry Finn. Yeah. I mean, he really sat me down and said, this is what a bus compressor does. This is how a bus compressor affects a mi- affects your mix, how it glues everything together. And he just kind of showed me, what, you know, he handed me a Les Paul and said, this is why the tone sounds different than a tele. I mean, he really just kind of said, this is why sonically these mixes just make more sense. And he really helped me. And I just knew... I didn't know as my, you know, Tim Palmer who produced stomping ground and a legendary record record producer. He produced uh, beautiful day for you too. Great guy. He really helped me sort of like 
how do you make, I mean, Tommy Lee, all these people have helped me along the way where I think certain guys and bands think that they're the, they know more than the marketing guy. They know more than the label. They know more than the manager about their own career. And a lot of times they have great ideas, but it's about being part of a team. Like I just heard this great podcast. Um, Tony Robbins was talking about how they hire at Southwest airlines. What they do is they have a group hire. They have like a hundred people, you know, trying for the same position. And so the people that are on stage being interviewed for the job, they look in the crowd and they see who is cheering on the person to try and get them hired like a political rally kind of yeah Yeah. who are the people that are supporting the person on stage being interviewed because they're the team player and that's truly how it has to work in the music business when i'm working with other engineers when i'm working with a mixing engineer when i mean i'm only one voice and i'm there to like be part of a team you know i'm not in the band i'm not pretending to be part of the band they have to they have to say this is where the ship is headed we're headed to a heavier album we're headed to a poppier album and i have to keep steering the ship to say your directive was to do this you know and i have to be there kind of steering it and in the end and some people just don't have that ability to kind of say management, label, marketing is all part of the same mission, which is to get you to be, because most bands I work with, their dream is to be playing arenas or headlining the Reading Festival and all that stuff. And to get there, you know, if you look back historically at all those groups, whether it's Post Malone or 21 Pilots, there's a huge army of people that are supporting the vision that the band has. And the band typically is supporting you know, those people and saying, just do your job because I'm out here doing interviews. I'm out here playing shows, you know? Uh, there we go. That's the Big Ben chime sound. Okay. Have we got a few more minutes? Are we okay for a little yeah, while? Yeah, let me yeah. shut my phone off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, who's the most difficult artist or group you've ever worked with, John? Can we go there? <sighs> I've had, I've had a few. I mean, story of the year were really, really difficult. Um, it's just the singer just uh, did never trusted me. He never trusted that I had, you know, I just think that he thought maybe it was a competitive thing, you know, that, that, that you know, they would all, they would, I, I took them out when Goldfinger was, you know, maybe at our peak. And so they were supporting us and they were such a great live band that maybe they, maybe he felt like, you know, they deserved more. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, I, I don't think it wasn't like he didn't like me. I just think I just didn't think he ever trusted me. City Sleeps was really difficult because I knew that that singer was really magical. And I made maybe one of my best sounding records with City Sleeps. And um, the songs were just incredible. I didn't even I, I, I what do I mean? I didn't even I didn't even write anything on that record. It's still good. It's still a great record. I mean, I, I mean, you have a, a semi amount to do with why it's great. I produced the album yeah. and I and, and I helped Let arrange I, I arranged songs that were great and um you know, the, again, the singer just, he just couldn't let go. And, and sometimes you've got to just trust in the process and to get to the finish line, trying a bunch of ideas, like a lot of times in the studio, like first idea is not the last idea, but unless you start with number one, you can't get to number 15. You know, you've kind of go, got to go down the road of trying stuff. And, um, and anytime, like I would say, let's try this. Oh, that's stupid. Or that's not, it's never going to work. And I'd say, maybe it won't. But unless you try something, we won't know until we actually try and experiment. Um, but I mean, look, every artist, uh, I mean, Brendan Urie could be the easiest person I've ever worked with. I mean, he was, and that's the thing is most of the most successful artists I've ever worked with, Blink-182, Good Charlotte, um, Panic at the Disco, The Used, uh, I mean, all all of, I mean, even, you know, Black Veil Brides, um, Biffy Clyro, the bands that I've worked with are the most successful are always the most open-minded and always the easiest to deal with. And, and perhaps the least egotistical. They're and open the, to the least, direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's the weirdest thing. Like, I don't know if it's like, a, um, I don't, I don't know if it's a, if it's a thing of like insecurity, you know, that people maybe don't think that they are good enough. And so they have to put up a fight to think that by putting up a fight, they're going to be good enough. Um, or experience perhaps sometimes as well humbles you, do you think? Mm, I don't know. I mean, I worked with a lot of these bands really early on and they were always, the good Charlotte guys were always super humble and awesome and amazing songwriters. And I think they knew their strengths and, 
And that's the thing is like if if a, if a true artist really knows the idea isn't great, they'll immediately come up with something better. If I, if I say, well, why don't you try this melody or, or try changing these chords? And if they know in their head it won't be right, they'll say, oh, let's try this instead. And it's be, it becomes more of like a fun moment rather than, oh, that sucks. You know, as soon as you suck the air out of the room and bring negativity in, then it's just really hard to kind of push through because everyone's feeling soured, you know? How many years have you been sober now, John? 30. Wow. Um, does it kind of affect you sometimes working with people who are in a, a bad state? Does that hurt you? Does it, you know, is that, is that difficult for you to watch sometimes when you see these people that are so talented throwing their talent away because of, you know, they perhaps can't control their addiction? And 30 years since I've sucked a dick for crack. That's a long fucking time. Now I just do it for fun. <laughs> but I don't smoke crack. Um, you know, there are some artists that smoke weed and it's just, it becomes this creative instrument where I, I fully like, I support like, this is great. And sometimes, you know, I'm working with addicts that when they're not smoking weed, they're miserable and insecure and anxious. And so it's really hard. So it's, it's tough. And, and, and I can just be a messenger of my own life and be an example of who I am. And if someone ever says, maybe I've had enough, I can call that guy because I, I see his life is working, you know, but I never try and push sobriety on anybody. But that being said, no one's, I mean, um, Fat Mike did some coke at my house. And and to be perfectly honest, he's fucking Fat Mike. You know what I mean? And uh and as much as like it's at one point I said, "You know what, brother? My my boy's going to take you home now because you know, we kind of had the conversation ran its course." And uh and I truly love that man and he has influenced me and he's just been he's just been a friend for a long time, you know? I mean, he's been a friend of mine and um but other than that, like I work with this one band, seven, seven, one, five, and they're legendary songwriters, but they, and they were doing Coke in the bathroom and I knew it. And I'm like, I mean, my only issue is so I, you record at your family home as that's, well, right? That's the issue that I have is like, you know, we're, I got my kids upstairs and if people are, you know, and people smoke weed out in the driveway, it's fucking fine. It's just, I mean, to be honest, I've never really felt like it's affected my duties as a record producer, or as a songwriter to deliver what I am, because I'm always constantly looking, what do they say? My side of the street, you know, how do I keep my side of the street clean? You know, and if I'm doing what I need to do, which is meditation and working out and, you know, just doing what I need to do to be able to focus on the music, then whatever they do isn't my business anyway. Uh, can we talk about, you know, obviously over the years you've been very known for your staunch and kind of active activism, whether it's for animal rights, veganism, things like this. Where do you stand currently on all of that stuff? And, you know, I guess at the moment there's a lot of talk about sustainability and climate change and huge issues that are going to affect us in, you know, deep and scary ways. And what do you think we can do and what can musicians do? with their platform to try and raise awareness of this stuff. Is that still a part of your life activism and raising awareness of how fucked the planet is? <laughs> Cause it's pretty fucked right now, isn't it, John? You know, my, um, I don't know. I mean, I feel so hopeful for the future. I just feel hopeful for my kids. I feel hopeful for music. I feel hopeful for everybody. I mean, I, I'm here and I, and, and I, and I hear the Uber drivers talking about Brexit and this whole, whatever's happening. And I just feel like it's going to be like the year 2000 where the computers were turning over and everyone was like, the world's going to end bug. from 1999 to 2000. And I just think that they're just going to, some shit's going to happen and it's going to be more important than Brexit and Brexit's just, I don't think it's going to be what I think people are scared that it's going to be. And I, um, I do believe that people want their grandchildren to, to be able to exist on this planet and people are making an effort and people, I mean, when I see protests and I, I've been a huge protester my whole life, you know, whether it was the democratic convention when I was 13 years old or, you know, in front of a KFC when I'm 22, you know, a vegan active activist, you know? Uh, and I mean the, the best thing we can do is, is just limit our meat 
in intake. I mean, that's the best thing we can do. If you look at the rainforest, you look at how we are treating the planet. It's mostly because of factory farming. I mean, that's what's killing the planet. So, I mean, to me, uh, an impossible burger at Burger King, which is like a huge deal to have such a massive fast food chain, bring an impossible burger in, you know, I know the KFC is now doing the imposter burger, you know, Dunkin' Donuts now has the beyond burger. Same with Carl's jr, which is a fast food chain in the States has a beyond burger. I mean, I feel like people are hearing like these institutions like Burger King are hearing the voice of the people saying we need a change and it has to start somewhere. You know, McDonald's, fuck McDonald's. They haven't done shit, you know, but there are people that really are trying to do something. And I feel like people are more aware than ever of everything because of the internet. And the options are there, aren't they? There's so many vegan and vegetarian options in supermarkets and restaurants everywhere now. Like it's easier and better than ever to be that way inclined in terms of dietary requirements, isn't it? That's right. You sport for choice. Yeah, yeah. Especially in the UK. It's like everywhere. Like, I mean, Nando's has always had vegan options and it's like Nando's is fucking everywhere. Uh, there's a couple of individuals I want to talk to you about before we wrap. One is Tim Armstrong. Um, I know you've done a lot of stuff with him, whether they be co-writes with certain artists or whatever. Tell me about Tim as a, as a songwriter, what he means to you as a, an artist and a, a writer, and then some of your shared experiences and things that you've done together. Tim is a, uh, I've never met, I don't think I've met an artist that's more of an artist than Tim Armstrong. I mean, that guy lives and breathes art. I mean, he doesn't drive a car, he rides a bus in LA, and he just like, his whole personality just encompasses what I, I believe if you would look up the word artist in the dictionary, it would have a picture of Tim Armstrong. You know, the guy just lives and breathes songwriting and he's just a legend as far as I'm concerned. I mean, the guy's a living legend and it's an honor to know this guy. Um, and I called him first time I really like hit him up to work was with itch when I was making itch's solo record. And, um, I'm covered in bruises. Was that's right. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Love that song. Yeah. Yeah. And he, um, he and Itch hit it off immediately. I mean, Itch was a you know a huge Operation Ivy and Rancid fan, so it was like this really it was like a seminal moment for Itch to watch that kind of happen and to watch Tim's process, you know. And I've kind of taken that on on my own the way he did it. Like we kind of sat in the room and we talked about Itch's life experience, being a homeless kid and kind of growing up and um, in London and all the stuff that he kind of went through. And Tim, I watched him kind of process it all, like listen to everything. He really heard. Itch's voice in the room and then he went downstairs into the drum room and he just had a guitar and just like sat there for maybe 20 minutes and just kind of like turned all of the conversation into this amazing song came back up and just played it for us and I'm like holy shit I mean this is like what artists do you know they translate what they hear in life or see in life and make it their own and that's and, and, and so a lot of times I'll do the same thing like I'm working with this band the Hunna right now and it's like they'll we'll talk about their life experience and kind of what they've been through they had you know their girlfriends or parents or loss of a parent and, and, and all kind of step out of the room now and kind of like let it pro rather than sit there and try John Lennon Paul McCartney style to just you know kind of go eyeball to eyeball and do it like I'll sometimes leave the room walk around and like Eric Clapton says sometimes songs are waiting for him in different areas you know and so I'll find it in the driveway or in my living room and I'll come back and like sort of say this is what my interpretation of what you're talking about is and uh, I mean sometimes it doesn't work out and other times they're like we love that but let's change this or whatever and it turns out great and so so for Tim I mean that was really the greatest sort of I, the way he taught me unintentionally taught me songwriting, you know, and like how great is knowledge. I mean, I mean, just from the beginning of his career, you know, to watch him write a song like that, it's just like, I mean, there's nothing better. I mean, that really is the seminal pop punk song of all time. I don't think, I don't know if there's a better one. I'm going to play it before you come on stage tonight. Um, how much do you think of the process as magic and unexplainable chemistry, alchemy, and how much is hard work and graft and, I think it's equal. I think it's I think it's fifty fifty. I mean, I believe in the ten thousand hour rule. I mean, I had probably produced between Goldfinger's first album, Hang Ups, my work on Stomping Ground, and then um, Open Your Eyes. I produced those four albums, and then I produced uh, three albums for Mest, the Show Off album, Un Loco. I produced that much that equaled. 
10,000 hours in the studio before I made the used first album. So I had put my 10,000 hours in, which was the hard work that you're talking about, which was really dialing in frequencies and learning what compressors do and figuring out how to, you know, just changing guitar strings and how to, you know, move a microphone around a guitar cabinet to find that sweet spot on the cone. All that kind of stuff that I learned as an engineer and as a producer, learning how to work Pro Tools on my own, learning how to tune a vocal, all that stuff that I did led me to the used first album. So I feel like that hard work, but I mean, like counting the days I wrote, I mean, here in your bedroom, both those songs I wrote in less than 10 minutes, it's not like, um, I don't know. I mean, without here in your bedroom, Goldfinger wouldn't, I wouldn't be here on tour for sure, because that was the song that started it all. And I just, you know, had this magical night with this girl and I wrote the song about it and it just kind of came to me in 10 minutes. And so is it, is it magic? I mean, it's a collection of all of my influences, you know, without growing up on social distortion and the buzzcocks and the English beat, it wouldn't have worked out because I, I stole a drum beat from the English beat and I you know stole some chords from Joe Jackson and it's like all a combination of all of it it's a magical thing isn't it and I think if, if anybody knew the secret then everybody would be hit makers and they'd be successful bands left right and center wouldn't they but that's that ongoing not struggle but quest right is like how can we find the next moment of magic and yeah. distill it and well my grandmother used to say you can't lock yourself in a closet and pray for a sandwich you've got to go make the sandwich and whatever the universe is going to deliver you've still got to put the work in and unless i'm continuing to write songs and i try and write a song a day i wrote a song yesterday on the train up here and i'm i'm constantly trying to read books and listen to new music and i'm trying to always push myself as a songwriter to say what's the next you know and, and i can't not be influenced by pop culture and you know and, and how i feel like with blink's new album i mean there's there's a huge influence by kind of what's happening with you know the programming that travis put on the record and sort of some of the arrangement stuffs with having choruses broken down in the beginning rather than these massive choruses like we made on california we really were cognizant of what you know what the movement is in music in general you know but trying to still keep it blink you know which can be challenging Last thing I want to ask you about is yourself and Charlie and what it means to you to have him back in the band because I didn't know he was going to be on this tour and then the first night when I saw him playing, I was like, fuck yeah. Um, what have you been through as friends and as you know, bandmates and what does it mean to you to have him back in the band now? Yeah, so Charlie Paulson and I, I mean, he's got... He comes from the love hog lineage of like every man for himself to a certain extent where everyone was like, I'm the lead singer. And... Even in the beginning of the band, I mean, Charlie had such a strong presence and it was always sort of like him and I on stage battling for kind of stage positioning, you know, because he had his circular thing and he's just a big dude. Um, and so by the time he quit, it was like sort of him and Darren formed a team and, you know, Darren... You know, Darren ended up suing me, which is one of those things that's hard to go back. It's hard to kind of come back to a relationship after you get sued by someone and it's a tough one. And, and, and I don't know if the relationship will ever be mended. I mean, I hope so. I don't, I don't really dislike him on any level, but Charlie and Darren sort of like went away at the same time. And so I just kind of assumed that Charlie would never come back without Darren. But we, we had coffee about, God, it must have only been three months ago we had coffee and he just came to me and he said look this is all the shit that I wish I would have done different and I said this is all the shit that I wish I would have done different you know and we kind of came to this kind of meeting you know a really great emotional meeting place and um I didn't know I was going to have him back in the band I just thought that we would be friends again and it's and it would be all good but I mean he um I don't know, he's, you know, he's working at this bar as a bouncer and I'm like, why the fuck would this huge talent be stuck downtown LA working at this bar when he could be on stage in, Man in Manchester tonight playing a show? And so I just kind of asked if he'd be interested and he's like, fuck yeah, I'd be interested in coming on tour. And so we have four guitar players now, which <laughs> it is what it is. But, uh, you know, it's... How was that first show in Sheffield? With him on the left. Well, we of the had stage we so year. he came out and played four songs with us at Back to the Beach, right. and then we played. Um, so this, this Sheffield was the third show with him back, and it was just no in a fourth because we did St. Louis, we did Chicago, and then we did here, and so it was like our fourth show. And it, it, by then, I felt like he found his place because we've been touring so much with Phil and with Mike that uh, we kind of had our groove, and then Charlie kind of came in, and he's got a very big personality on stage but I feel like he has changed 
15%, which is just enough for me to be able to like say this is fucking awesome. Like really awesome. Because the energy's great. I don't know. If, I don't know what you think, but I think I love it, mate. I absolutely love it. I mean, this tour for me is the dream bill anyway. But just Monique and her absolute incredible, larger than life stage act. Like she's just the best. We haven't got time to talk about her, but she. I know that you know that she's amazing because you've done loads of work together over the years. To then be followed with you guys with Charlie back in the fold, and then less than Jake after that like it's it's like an orgasm reaching climax every night it's yum yum <laughs> uh, John I didn't look at my notes once because it's always a pleasure talking to you mate thank you so much for your time oh it's my pleasure and um, can we expect anything on the horizon from you soon in terms of either you know new golfing and music or new records that you're working on can you tease anything or is it too soon for any of that stuff just now I'm in the look I'm in the middle of this Hunter record which I'm really excited about I mean those guys are like true rock and roll humans I mean and they love you know, they play their own instruments and they're like a real band, which is, you know, sometimes not the way it goes these days. So it's very exciting to me to work with these guys. Um, after that, I'm doing another Atreyu record and I love those kids. They're fucking great. And so, I mean, that's, I, I'll probably make another Goldfinger record, but I mean, the knife, I just, I, I'm still feeling like the knife is a new record. Yeah, of course. So I'm not really thinking about doing it. I mean, I will, but not today. So good to see you, mate. Thanks for coming on the show and um, I'll see you tomorrow so you're doing this that. like like it's like an emo night thing that you're doing i mean it's kind of like you've taken on this djing thing and made this like kind of like it's your own thing isn't it i'm trying to do as many tours as i can and try and keep it as broad as possible i did steel panther in february um and this podcast has been going now two and a half years so that's the day-to-day -day focus but then I, I just love being on the road i love being on tour i love being in different cities every day and i love being on stage like this is great and i love these moments of connection with individuals that i you know look up to and admire but there's nothing quite like being on that stage and feeding off that live energy is there nothing so, like it so if you ever need a dj anytime john <laughs> you're the best <laughs> make <dude>. the call <laughs> um thank you pleasure thank you matt catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.